Hey there, and welcome to Pwncast. Actually, you guys are here a little bit early, so if you could just hold on one second. John, can you help me out? Sure, man. With what? Uh, we need to finish setting up for this podcast. We don't have any of the equipment ready. We haven't done a sound check yet. Can sure. You... No problem, buddy. Do you see how easy that was? Huh? That's what this episode is all about today. Asking for help. Really? Really. Don't you just do it? Ask for help? That's the short version. So episode over. All right, let's pack up all that equipment. Jamie just asked me to get out. First of all, you still haven't finished helping me set it up. And although it may be easy to ask for help with something as easy as setting up equipment with a trusted friend, <laughs> yep, uh-huh. it's not really that easy. When it comes to things like asking for the help of a surgeon at 4 o'clock in the morning to come see your patient who has a subdural, things get a little more hairy. I gotcha. Or when you have a really sick patient you don't know what to do with, but you feel like you should know what to do with. Or when you have a difficult airway, but you're the most experienced person in the room. Or when you're in a code and you just can't figure out why they're coding. I think that's enough examples for now. Well, hang on. Those are classic medicine patient examples. What are some intangible examples? Oh, right. Like when you're super busy in the intensive care unit and your colleagues aren't busy and they're not really getting the message. Or do you continue to slog through it? Or do you ask for help? They might think you're weak if you ask for help. We'll talk about all of that today. Now I'm liking the direction of this episode. Let's get started. So we got the idea of this episode from a podcast called the Harvard Business Review IdeaCast. And it's geared towards leaders and managers in a business setting. It's not a medical podcast. But as you can see, this episode is very applicable to us in medicine. This is one of several non-medical leadership style podcasts that I listened to recommended by Chad Case, who, if you remember, is one of our previous guests and our ICU director, and it's one of my favorites. I listened to this particular episode a few weeks ago, and I may have set the high score on the amount of times I have paused and taken notes on a podcast episode. It's so applicable to everyday life as a provider. The episode is number 634, and it's called Getting People to Help You. It features author Heidi Grant, who's a social psychologist who wrote the book Reinforcements, How to Get People to Help You. 634, man. You think we're ever going to hit that? In like 10 years. Yeah, that's impressive. So we'll link the book in the podcast in the... Show notes. Are we still doing show notes? Yeah, of course. Still a thing. All right. So asking for help is harder than we're joking about in the beginning, right? Why? Heidi Grant thinks there are several reasons why, but to summarize all of those, number one, we don't think that we'll get the help. Number two, we think that asking for help makes us weak, or at least makes us appear weak. And number three, we fear rejection if the person we're asking for help says no. Those all sound like valid reasons. Are they true? According to Dr. Grant, no. People are about twice as likely to help us as we think they are. But we spend so much time worrying about if they say no or what they'll think of us that we just end up not asking. Something we see all the time in our workplace that Dr. Grant highlights so well has a psychological term. It's called the illusion of transparency. Tell me what it means, Jer. The illusion of transparency is the tendency for people to overestimate the degree 
to which their personal mental state is known by others. Man, super guilty of this one. Interesting. Break that down for me. What does that mean? Uh, Maybe we should ask my wife to break it down for (laughs) us. But it's not just about asking for help. But the thought here is that we're all pretty self-absorbed as humans. Just it's the reality. So we think that other people interacting with us are far more in tune with our thoughts and our feelings than they actually are. I love this. In reality, while we're worried about what they're thinking about us, they are just as self-absorbed as we are and are sitting there thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about us at all. People have an egocentric bias, just to throw another term at you. And this pretty much means that we weigh our own perspective much too heavily when we try to consider another individual's perspective. And this affects us in so many ways in everyday life. Let's think about something like public speaking. We think that the audience can tell that we're super nervous, but they're usually not that perceptive, and they can't. That's something called the spotlight effect. Oh, something new I'm nerding out on, Jeremy, is these psychological terms. Keep them coming. You know I have more. To keep it official, these are one of the many cognitive biases out there. Always something new to nerd out on. We'll link some studies on the spotlight effect in the show notes, but just knowing that the spotlight effect exists leads to better public speaking, and that goes for most of these cognitive biases. Knowing that they exist helps us to avoid having them. Oh man, I'm getting excited. You got any other cognitive biases for me? Most people in medicine have heard of the bystander effect, and this one is pretty profound. It's the phenomenon when nobody helps in a code or a similar stressful and high-stakes situation because they all think that somebody else is going to do it. This is partially due to the illusion of transparency. People in the room aren't able to perceive what the individual running the code may feel is obvious. Or if a patient is found down, especially outside of the hospital... Everyone thinks that it should be somebody else's job to start CPR. Maybe somebody else is more qualified to help. And that's called the diffusion of responsibility. The more people around when you need help, the less likely you might be to get help because everyone thinks someone else is going to step up. This reminds me of the classic day shift in hospital cardiac arrest. On the floor, 15 providers, even more nurses, even more respiratory therapists all come into the room and kind of stand there with their arms crossed. Then a few stat team nurses try to do CPR and pull drugs and start IVs. There's no clear leader. There are so many people, and yet the few people in the room are doing so much work. We've all seen that happen in the hospital. I'm proud of our Code Blue committee working hard to correct that by assigning roles and trying to minimize who runs in the room during a code. As an individual, we think that people can see the look of concern or stress on our face, maybe us starting to sweat, the shorter phrases or words we're speaking. But in reality, people miss those cues. You can't expect people to pick up on those cues, especially in a cardiac arrest. And that's why people recommend to ask for help to a specific person with very specific and directed instructions. All right, so we've talked about all the reasons we don't ask for help and why people don't just know we need help and volunteer. Let's talk practical. How do we ask for help? Let's illustrate asking for help by doing some examples of how it's not done very well. That sounds fun. I'll start. 
Hey, Jer, I'm so sorry to ask you this. I know you've got a lot of your own stuff going on. I've just been really busy lately. I've had a lot of clinical shifts. I've been running this airway course. I've been doing lectures. I really just need you to write this next Palmcast episode. I'm super sorry to ask you for that. That was really whiny. (laughs) So my example, if you couldn't tell, is apologizing excessively. We think it makes the person more likely to help when we share all the reasons we need help. But in reality, we're focusing way too much on ourselves again. We're focusing on what we think the cost will be to that person from our perspective. But in reality, people are wired to help people. And when we really need help and someone gets to help us, they'll get a sense of well-being and fulfillment from doing so. So don't apologize for needing help. That would be my summary there. Now it's my turn. Hey, John, I'm getting slammed in my unit today. Can you help me see some patients? And if you do it, I'll buy you lunch. I mean, I brought my lunch today. I'm currently doing a Whole30 gluten-free tacos-only diet, so... Black coffee? Uh, I'll just come see the patients. You don't need to give me anything. So that example is offering a reward. This makes us feel better asking for help if we offer a reward, And we think that it will make the person more likely to say yes. But in reality, we're robbing them of that feeling of well-being and fulfillment that they would get by helping someone in need. It becomes much more transactional and they feel like less of a friend or a coworker. That's fascinating. I have definitely done that a time or two. I've heard you apologize a time or two as well. All right, I'll try another. I hope I haven't done this one too much. Hey, Jer? Yes? Can you do me a favor? Yeah? Can you drive me to the airport? (sighs) Why did I say yes? I don't live anywhere near the airport. I won't be able to go to the gym. I can't do any of the things I wanted to do. I won't be able to play Overwatch. (laughs) So the old ask for a favor routine. I have definitely done this one, although more outside of work than at work. Sorry, family. It's called a pre-commitment, and it's uncomfortable for people to say no, so this method is an effective way to get people to help you. However... It just feels manipulative and sneaky to the person you're doing it to, so it's not ideal to use in the workplace or with people you'd like to keep as friends or colleagues. You know another way that people do this all the time? What's that? When people will text you, hey, and you get your text and you look and you're like, hey, you're like, hi... And then they ask you a question. It's the same old bait and switch because then they know you're right there, right? They, you know, they know you're answering. And so if you don't answer them right away, you just feel guilty. It's awful. The text version of ask me a favor. It's like 2018 version of ask, mm-hmm. pre-commitment. Anyway, I'm going to do another one that we see all the time in medicine. For this one, I'm the ICU provider. And uh, John, can you pretend like you're the surgeon? Okay, got it. I'm in roll. Let's go. Hey, John. Yes? I've got a patient in the ICU who has worsening shock, low urine output, and a rising intra-abdominal pressure. Okay. I'll come see him, I guess. Okay, let's pause. What did I think I said? I think I painted a crystal clear picture of a patient who has a classic presentation of abdominal compartment syndrome. I feel like this patient needs surgical intervention ASAP. The surgeon should come immediately to the bedside and work towards getting the patient to the OR. Well, as the surgeon in this example, I heard an ICU patient who's in shock. That sounds like most ICU patients I know. 
I haven't heard of any workup done to determine if they have a surgical need, and I haven't heard any time frame of when they want me to see the patient. I'm super busy today, so I'm going to wait a little while to see if they progress that workup a little bit, or they'll just call me back if that situation gets worse. I love this example and the illumination of that thought process. All levels of healthcare workers do this, all of us, all the time. RTs, RNs, students, residents, APPs, and even attendings. They stop short of the official ask and just think that the other person is listening to them. We're fooled into thinking that they can infer what we have inferred about the patient without actually directly asking them. In this scenario, we're not considering the surgeon's perspective at all. They have no idea if that surgeon is busy, distracted, having a bad day. They simply aren't thinking about what information that person needs to make a good decision, and they aren't making a clear ask. There are lots of ways to combat this in medicine. First, a clear assessment-oriented presentation. It helps. One of the other things that we teach is the classic SBAR format, along with the recommendation at the very end. These things go a long way to make sure that the other party is understanding your ask. Make sure you're clear in your ask. If you need someone at the bedside, then say, I need you at the bedside as soon as possible. We see this mistake in other aspects of medicine. Let's do one more. All right, I'll take it. Hey, Jeremy, I'm really busy in my unit today. I've got two central lines pending. My liver patient's going into multipressor shock. And I've got a difficult family that's going to need a long goals of care conversation this afternoon. Bummer, dude. So just like before, I stopped short of the ask. I made a statement. I never asked Jeremy for help. He has no idea if I'm just venting about my tough day or if I truly need help. He may be busy and distracted with his own stuff going on in his unit, and he won't pick up on any of the social cues that I'm stressed and need help. Another mistake would be, hey, John, can you help me write the next Pwncast episode? Sure, I'd love to. Great. Here's the topic I wanted on. Make sure it's about 15 minutes in length. It needs to be funny, but not too funny. Your jokes aren't landing lately, and I really need you to pick it up. Make sure that there's enough physiology, but not too much physiology, and keep the study name dropping to a minimum. Okay. I'm guessing you're painting a picture of being too controlling with your ask. Exactly. If you're going to ask for help, you're going to have to take a step back and relinquish some of the control. They may do the task or project a little bit differently than you may have done it, but you have to be okay with that. I have definitely had to learn this over the years as a manager and could still stand to learn it even better. It's one of the hardest things to do. But at some point you realize I can't accomplish as much if I do everything my way or micromanage people. That's a hard lesson to learn. But don't people want some direction when taking over a project, for example? They don't want to be directionless, certainly, especially if it's a task that they've never done before. But there's a very fine line between providing direction and micromanagement. Do give them enough direction to feel comfortable completing the task, but don't overstep your boundaries. And communication goes a long way in this realm. The other thing that I think is really powerful is that a lot of times when you ask somebody to do a task for you and they do it maybe in a way that you wouldn't have done it, sometimes their way is actually better. Sometimes you learn something new about the task that you could have never brought. They bring an element of creativity that just wasn't there before. And so relinquishing control can really yield positive outcomes if you're comfortable with it. 
Absolutely. Getting fresh eyes on something you've been stuck with is extremely helpful. All right, last example. Hey, Jer, I really need your help with this lecture I'm giving to the ICU nurses next week. Here's my PowerPoint. Can you help me make it look better? I know you're a presentation nerd. What do you think of my direction? So far, that's an okay ask. I don't really see the problem yet. Just wait for it. So let's say Jeremy provides the help that I need and my talk is better for it. I give the talk, it goes well, and then... John? Yeah? What's next? Nothing. What? So the example is at the end of our interaction for the ask, I ask you to help, you help me make my talk better, I give my talk, it's better, and then nothing. I don't let you know how the talk went. I don't mention if the tweaks we made together made it better or worse. Nothing. As you can imagine, that's not very satisfying to the person who helped you and may influence how frequently they help you in the future. I think the summary here is to let them know the outcome. How did the talk go? Make sure to touch base with your helper and really at this point, your mentor afterwards. So they can get the feel-good well-being from helping you out. If they never know how it went, they can't get all those feel-good vibes. We went over all the bad examples of how not to ask for help. How do we ask for help then? So we can break the advice down to just a couple of things. Number one, get over your fear of asking for help. Number two, be aware of the cognitive biases we've outlined and be specific and direct with your need. And number three, avoid the mistakes we've talked about and let the person know how their help was valuable afterwards. Let's say our listeners don't work on a team that's helpful or they'd like their team to be more helpful. How do they go about doing that, especially if they are not in charge? So I'd say regardless of if you're a leader in your organization down to the lowest person on the totem pole, that brand new hire, new physician, new PA, you can be the change that you want to see. Number one, that's Gandhi. Number two, that was really generic <laughs> feel-goody advice. That's not really that helpful for our listeners. True. But in the asking for help arena, sometimes all it takes is someone on the team to change the culture. Be that person that is open and asks for help when needed. Show you are willing to be vulnerable as a medical provider. All it takes is one person to see you doing that and start doing it themselves. And then you get a snowball effect as it continues to grow. Maybe that's idealistic of me, but I've seen that happen in organizations before. Cultural change. Before you know it, your team feels like a team that has each other's backs and it's a much better place to work. Medicine is hard enough without making it harder on ourselves. This sounds like a good place to end to me, but you don't sound like you're finished. There's a few more things we should probably mention. I bet everybody listening has several people on their team that they have no problems approaching for help and several people on their team they feel uncomfortable asking for help. How does that happen? That's an interesting point. I think some people are givers and struggle with saying no to teammates. Those are the people who are easy to ask. They overcommit themselves and just haven't learned how to say no. Neither of us have ever had a problem with overcommitment, right? I'm not ready to talk about that. <laughs> but the point stands. It's a lesson that comes too late in our careers of when to say no to request. Givers can end up being burned out if they say yes to everything. So if you are that type of person, be careful with your yeses. We could do a whole podcast episode just on that. It's our tendency to start with our go-to helpers first when asking for help. 
We know John will help, so let's just ask him. This is all born from our fear of rejection. We don't like being told no. So we go to people that we think have the highest likelihood of saying yes. But this leads to overworking certain individuals on your team. And I've seen this a lot in our practice and in other groups. The same group of people ends up doing the majority of the tasks that need to get done. So as the asker, how do we combat that? Continue to ask the people that you feel more uncomfortable asking. Why do you feel more uncomfortable? It's likely because they've said no to you in the past, or maybe you just believe they will say no. Maybe they just don't appear as eager as the givers, but that doesn't mean that they don't have value to add, and it doesn't mean that you couldn't provide them mentorship to do the task that you're asking them to do. Perhaps last time you asked, they were super busy or had personal stuff going on. I'm planning on working on this one myself. It's too easy to go to the same people all the time. Why don't we close this out and summarize? Asking for help isn't always easy, but hopefully being aware of our cognitive biases and some of the common mistakes that we encounter will allow us to be better, to be better at asking for help. Medicine is a team sport, and the more we act like a team, the more fulfillment we'll get out of work. I can remember some hard shifts that I ended up leaving feeling positive because we had good teamwork with everyone helping each other out. And I've had some shifts that weren't the busiest in the world, but left feeling worse due to lack of teamwork. Somehow, it just feels better going through the mud with each other. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading and ask for help. <laughs>